thank you so much for coming on, Shannon. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for I've being been, so I've patient. Been, oh, yeah, no worries. I've, uh, <laughs> I've admired your work for, for such a long time, and it's such a thrill to actually be able to talk to you. Oh, thank you. So you're in South Africa right now? Yes, South Africa, okay. very, very hot. Yeah. <laughs> Have you lived there your whole life? <laughs> No, so I'm Australian, uh, and okay. I moved here in 2013. So I've been here about eight years. So this is home now, um, but uh, yeah, originally an Aussie. Oh, okay. I on a I was just on a beneath the waves trip in the Bahamas. Uh, I was the photographer, and we had. Uh, do you know who Carlos Duarte is? He's a, he's a marine uh, I probably biologist. know the work. So he does a lot Terrible of work things. with uh, seagrass and the okay. carbon and seagrass. And, Amazing. Um, he works at the school Kaust in Saudi Arabia. Huh. And he had three undergrad students, and one of them was Australian, and uh, she was so fun to hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so what made you move from uh, Australia to South Africa? Uh, a couple of reasons. So obviously the wildlife, uh, big, big plus, and uh, this line of work as a wildlife photographer and uh, filmmaking, it helps if you're closer to the action. And um, while there is definitely a lot happening in Australia, it is um, it is pretty far away. And so being based here is, is quite helpful because I do do a lot of work throughout Africa. Um, but globally as well. So it just, uh, it makes it easier to have this as a base. And also it's a really, really beautiful place to live. Uh, yeah. And my husband is South African as well. So he's also a wildlife cinematographer. Um, so that was definitely uh, part of yeah. the draw. That's yeah. awesome. That's so <laughs> cool. Um, I have a friend who's South African. She's always told me it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's stunning. Yeah. So in Australia is when you said it's far away, do you mean like the wildlife itself to get to it is further from like where you would live and like in South Africa, it's, they're just closer to you? Uh, no, not necessarily because, uh, you know, I, you can live in a city here and mm -hmm. kind of be separated from nature just like you can in Australia. But, um, no, I found, Wildlife is very accessible in Australia. It was more working uh, on an international level. Mm. Oh my goodness, it's it's a long way to travel, especially <laughs> if you're you know <laughs> working in. I mean, in saying that, even being based, I mean, I'm based in the bush, so it still takes me five and a half hours to drive to an airport, and then you know wow. it's usually a few connections. So. Um, but it's definitely easier working within Africa. So I can drive to Mozambique or Botswana, Namibia, um, Zimbabwe. So, um, you know, yeah. if I'm willing to put in the hours, then, uh, it's definitely a, a bit more accessible. And then wildlife, I mean, moving here, there was no way I was going to move across the other side of the world and live in a city. <laughs> when I could do that <laughs> in Australia. So, yeah. um, yes, so I definitely live in the bush. So I am surrounded and so fortunate to be surrounded by wildlife. So I can look out of my window and see giraffe and zebra walking by and oh my baboons. And, yeah, it's literally I'll have giraffe come down my driveway and be munching on things. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. is so crazy. Yeah. I mean, I still pinch myself after almost a decade here. It's magic. That's nuts. Do you do you yeah. ever, since you are so close to them, can you get, like, just great photos all the time of them, just from your balcony? <laughs> yeah, I have, absolutely. So, uh, you know, you have to, they're wild animals, so you still have to, behave respectfully and mm -hmm. uh you know otherwise you'll end up getting kicked or injured or bitten by something <laughs> but yeah I, I mean i've literally uh shot from my bedroom balcony and giraffe are maybe two or three meters in front of me munching on a tree so i'm able wow. to get some really nice close stuff so 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's the yeah, dream right there. It's <laughs> yeah. So that that, so that cool. I can then put up with the constant power outages <laughs> because I get <laughs> I get the animals. So Yeah. Is yeah. the power outages a normal thing there? Yes. Yes. Oh wow. <laughs> so it's it's more often at the moment we're coming into summer and so we're having a lot of summer storms, a lot of rain. Mm. And the, the, the power infrastructure in this country is terrible to begin with. Um, but as soon as we get a little bit of rain, everything goes out. But we've been having really hectic thunderstorms, lightning, hail all of a sudden. So the power, I mean, has been going out for like 13 hours at a time. And, um, wow. and then, you know, it'll come back on and you're just like, yes, finally. And then they're obviously fiddling with it. So then it goes off <laughs> and then it comes yeah. on and off. It's a, yeah. So that's frustrating. I, um, we definitely need to switch over to solar. That's kind of the logical mm. thing to do. Um, and then on top of the outages, that are not scheduled we also have load shedding so they're scheduled outages because the country cannot manage our resources well enough to keep the power going all the time so basically what that means is they tell you in advance it's going to be off for two and a half hours at this time uh, so you can at least prepare a little bit but it's always like right at breakfast or lunch or dinner um or it's in layers of stages so depending on how bad things are and this is countrywide but depending on how bad it is is what level you're at so if we're at like a level four load shedding it's going off uh three or four times a day for two and a half hours each time so it's just like you're on then you're off then you're on then you're off so it's very very frustrating as someone that uh, works for a living with technology Um, (laughs) but I definitely do have the bonus of you know the the beautiful animals in the bush and nature here so I just can go outside (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and and speaking of your work um how did you get into photography because obviously you're very talented and it seems you've been doing it for a while what was the the catalyst to get you to where you are now uh so it's been a long a long process so i've been shooting professionally for 18 years now um but when i first started i started photographing my pet reptiles i had a pet lizard uh initially and so I started photographing him and he was super charismatic. So he was a really, <laughs> really fun subject. Uh, and then um, I kind of, uh, so I'm self-taught. So I just would practice at home and I would go out into nature and make lots of mistakes and, you know, yeah. learn that way, read lots of magazines because at this point there's no, definitely no Instagram. Right, no um, YouTube. Internet <laughs> is just, yeah, no YouTube. Um but thankfully, you know, with digital, you you can play around with some settings and right. you get feedback. So it's not like um, putting your, your film in and then by the time you get it back, you can't remember what your settings were. So <laughs> yeah. that's that was definitely helpful, but it was early days. So, yes, we were dialing up our, our emails to check maybe once a day. So there was no, no great YouTube videos and Instagram, which thank <laughs> god for now um yeah and i just started uh networking a lot in the reptile community within australia so i was taking photos of other people's reptiles i was obviously going out and photographing as many wild animals as i could uh and then uh, so at that point i was working as a graphic designer as my job and Mm. um volunteering as a wildlife carer and so I'd always been involved in wildlife and animal related things so that was kind of that was the ongoing passion uh and then I had to get a job and as a creative person graphic design seemed like the the logical step so I kind of had these two elements of my life fulfilled but separately because I I didn't know at that point that you could combine those and yeah make a living out of you know both together so that kind of like came I think I was maybe 24 when I first got a camera and just yeah started playing around and 
quickly realized that I enjoyed it a lot more than graphic design and <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably better at it than, than I was a graphic designer. So um, I, I made a conscious effort to kind of shift careers and it took many, many years, obviously, to to leave the security of a job and go freelance full time. Um, and at that point, I was photographing everything that I could for work. So it wasn't just animals because it's it's so niche. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like getting paid for, for wildlife and animal photos is so, so difficult. And often, certainly in the beginning for me, it was if I got anything at all, it was after the fact if I could sell the images to a magazine or something like that. So then I started a pet photography business where I could actually commercialize working as a photographer in animals. Yeah. And that was very, very cool. So I ran that for seven years and just got to run around at the beach and the park with dogs and, <laughs> uh, and cats. And yeah, super, super fun and such an excellent way to hone my skills of photographing moving subjects while still having a little bit of control because, of course, I've got I've got treats and I've got <laughs> right. toys and like bribery, uh, which, you know, I can't do any of that now, but it was a really great foundation to um, hone my skills for then once I transitioned into working with wild animals full time. So yeah, very, very gradual, but um, yeah. And it's been an interesting, interesting journey, but the bulk of what I do now is um, filming for documentaries. So the future, it's definitely video. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's such an interesting path because you definitely got to do a lot of different aspects and it probably taught you a ton more than if you had just started and tried to only do wildlife photography and just worked on that. But you did a lot of more broad work and then that probably just helped develop your skills a ton. Definitely. Yeah. So then um, I've started now trying to work on my video because the people I work for, they're like, video is king. That's that's everything. And so it's true. such a struggle for me because it's so much harder than photography, like stills, because you it have the really, editing. really is. Oh my gosh. How, how yeah. did you make that shift to working on that? Also gradual. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obviously great to have the foundation of photography. So you're thinking in terms of composition and, mm -hmm. you know, if you have that technical base of, you know, how to get exposure correctly and what your aperture does and depending on your style of shooting what that looks like um but yes when you start to then go into filming there's so many other things to consider on top of all of that that you would get in freezing a moment mm -hmm. or a photograph um and what i my advice is definitely to spend some time on the editing side of things so even if that's not your end goal. Your end goal is to only be working the camera and shooting. Um, it's so important to know how an editor needs or how they would deal with that footage because then you start thinking about um, how would an editor transition into this clip and then transition out? Am I, right. am I just randomly filming or am I filming with a view that, that then ends the sequence. So when I'm filming wildlife, for example, and I have an animal in frame and it starts moving, I have to decide in that moment, do, am I going to follow that animal and track with it or am I going to hold my frame and as part of the footage let it exit frame or hope that it does. You know, sometimes they'll yeah. like start and then they stop midway and you're like, Okay, there goes that shot. But it's, you know, <laughs> you, uh, you can't really uh, direct these subjects. So you just kind of make uh, decisions in the moment and hope that it pays off. And obviously through experience and more shooting and predicting animal behavior and just getting <clears throat> used to those things, you, your, um, you know, your risks pay off more often right. but yeah it's part of it's part of it and so it's really important to understand how an editor would then use your footage so you're thinking that way as you're shooting as well and then when you get to a point where you maybe don't have to edit your own clips the editor is going to love you because you 
it's clear that you've thought about their job as well. And it allows them, you know, if, if something exit frames, you don't stop recording like immediately, give it a second or two so that they've got that to work with. So then it's a transition option that they have in the edit in post-production right. and just things like that that will come as you, the more you shoot, just getting out there and doing it and then playing around with your footage as well. Yeah, I like that a lot. And um, I appreciate the advice. Um, I was... <laughs> I was just editing, I made a, a little video of the trip that I was on and like I wasn't planned on doing that and while I was editing it, I was like, hmm, next time I'm going to shoot with more attention. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I, I wish I did this or I wish they yeah. did that and that's like, so then you you have that in mind next time, it's, it's really important um, and I think in this day and age, so many people that are filming are doing edits with their own footage. So it's it's like a natural learning process anyway. Um, right. I feel like in the past it it was more common to be very separate roles um, oh. where you're just, you know, you're on camera out in the field and you hand over that footage. Uh, and that's much more what I do because, you know, I'll go out and work on long-term productions and, um, and we literally will hand just raw footage constantly over to a professional editor uh, and they're working with, um, you know, whoever the the production is for to, you know, refine a storyline or work the look and feel of, of the documentary. So, yeah, it's, it's – but then in, in my daily life, if I'm creating clips or sort of smaller – videos for social media or my own promotion then I'm getting to do both and that's definitely part of the learning processes yeah <sighs> appreciating the editor because my goodness their job is so hard <laughs> so yeah. hard god bless them yeah uh absolutely yeah and it's it's interesting you mentioned social media because I think there's such more of a push for a video on it and like that gets more engagement sometimes. So it's, it's really forcing me to really hone those skills. Yeah. Have you noticed that for you? Like, is your, do your videos do better? Yeah, I, I have noticed and I need to put more of a conscious effort into that because <laughs> I still post majority on social media is images um, with sporadic video but video is definitely favored and it is the bulk of my work now but the tricky part of that is I'm you know if I'm shooting I that's not my footage to release either oh, so the rights yeah. come into play so when I'm filming for National Geographic then I also quite often can't be out there doing social posts about what I'm doing at the time so even if it's video off my phone I'm not allowed to say where I am and what I'm doing until it comes out. Um, and then the actual footage that I've captured will then go to, you know, if it's National right. Geographic or, or BBC or Apple or whoever it's for. So then depending on the, the contract that we have, I can't post that footage. So, you know, if I'm busy working, then I'm posting less footage because – it's essentially not mine anymore. Um, yeah. That, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't even thought about it that way. Um, how often are you on these productions and like how long can they vary in length? Well, not as much lately. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> given uh, given the, uh, the circumstances of the world. But uh, um, so as an example, my last major production that I was – on. I still have one that's ongoing, but um, there's one that I filmed on a melanistic leopard, so a black panther in India, and so that was 18 months of filming uh, to get a one-hour documentary, which is essentially a 45 minutes of footage allowing for wow. commercials in there. So, yeah, that was – and so we're going out every day into the bush uh, or forest and filming all day kind of looking for this one leopard and hoping that we find him and then hoping that he does something interesting enough 
to make a compelling documentary because, as I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, cats are spending most of their time sleeping (laughs) (laughs) or hidden. Um, So finding him in the first place was incredibly difficult. Uh, And then even if we did see him, it didn't mean that we were physically in a position that we could film. So my camera gear was bolted onto the side of a vehicle on one side. We're working with very narrow roads in a forest. Um, So, you know, we might not have been able to turn the vehicle around in time to even film it if we do see him. So that was, we needed that all of that time. Uh, And we could have easily filmed another year or two just to get like sporadic shots of him doing stuff to make this this documentary. But we, you know, thanks to the editors, the wonderful editors at Nat Geo, um, the footage that we did get in that year and a half, which was very much dictated by budget. Um, so we're just doing our best within that time frame. Uh, and they, yeah, did a really great job of, um, you know, building this interesting story and documentary around what we managed to capture so yeah it varies though I mean there's a documentary we're working on at the moment which was supposed to go for about a similar amount of time and then the pandemic hit so then it was obviously extended but delayed in terms of actual shooting and then now things have picked up so it's filming within South Africa so it doesn't involve Uh, like cross-border travel so we can film but it's also a very difficult subject and so finding the subjects is proving really hard so we're at the three-year mark at this point Uh, but then sometimes you'll get uh, two weeks to go out and uh, film a sequence that maybe then becomes part of a larger documentary so for example, Planet Earth, it's not the entire documentary about one thing. You're right. having all these little segments. So that can vary. It can be a few months to capture that segment or it might be a behaviour where, uh, you know, at the moment, like I'm waiting on a certain weather to trigger a certain behaviour and then I have to kind of drop everything and go out and film it. And so... The, the process of dealing with the, the producers is long, but the actual going out into the field and filming might be, it un, it'll only happen for a few days and then oh. that becomes a sequence. So it really varies on, um, on the subject and the location and also if we're trying to capture specific behaviour or just general behaviour. Yeah, that is, that's crazy. I, I can't imagine doing an 18-month, how does how do you do that how how does it how do you make that ha- work i mean it was that was a tough shoot um you know we lived in a very basic so it was my husband and i uh and we were in a very basic shack in the edge of the forest that leaked uh, you know when it rained and so i remember waking up <laughs> one one uh, i think it was around midnight and literally an inch of water on the bottom of our little shack. And so I'm rushing to get like cases of equipment and stuff to try and get it higher. And, and then it got to monsoon season. So then everything with a surface was growing mold. It was, ugh, it was gross. Um, and then it was, so it was really hot. Like it was just a really uh, beautiful but uncomfortable shoot. So that definitely felt like 18 months. But at the same time, <laughs> I'd, I'd go back in a heartbeat. I mean, this forest is, you know, it's got the Black Panther. Uh, it also has normal colored leopards. It's full of tigers and Indian wild dogs and elephants and just so much wow. cool stuff. So, uh, you know, most of our time was spent in the forest and then, um, you know, we would just come back to our little shack to sleep at night uh, and recharge our gear and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I managed to break my back on that shoot as well. So that wasn't oh my gosh. that comfortable either. <laughs> so, yeah. How did that happen? Uh, so I was – the filming vehicle that I was in is basically an open – tray back and it has a bench seat at the back and my gear I, is physically bolted into the vehicle and thank goodness uh and so at 
at one point we we got word of the panther that there's a sighting and so obviously we're very excited my driver is just like straight off there um and he hit this bump on i mean it's dirt road it's bumpy anyway but he hit this bump that he didn't see and i just went flying and came down very very hard um and yeah managed to do a compression fracture and a couple of vertebrae in my thoracic region uh like four bulging discs and like nerve damage and that kind of stuff so that uh the joys of being kind of in a remote area in the middle of nowhere, India, and then trying to get to a hospital, the hospital kind of just like laughing at you that there's probably nothing wrong. So then going, then going back a week later and then finally getting MRIs and they're like, Oh no. Oh my <laughs> so it was gosh. a whole thing. Um, and then I was, I was off for like nine months uh, from that. And and then went back and basically just messed it up again because it was too too soon. So oh lots of like ongoing pain and stuff. But it's all mostly it's so obviously the bones have healed and the the discs are fine now. Um, and so it's mostly just nerve and uh, the muscles like cramping because they think they're helping by you know protecting and like right cramping um and so it's sort of gone up into the neck and the arm so i have a lot of referred pain now so that that sucked but um but aside from that it was awesome (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness that is crazy yeah wow (laughs) not my finest moment (laughs) dang um (laughs) So what is a, I was wondering, I always wonder with wildlife photographers, filmmakers in particular, you guys get to travel around the world to some of the most remote, beautiful places on the planet. Do you have like a bucket list location or a bucket list animal that you would like to document that you haven't been able to yet? Yes. It's a long, long list. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I haven't been to South America yet. Uh, or Central America. So uh, I, even since I was little and never knew that I would be doing this kind of work, the Galapagos Islands has always been at the top of my bucket list. Um, And so seeing, so I'm a huge reptile fan, obviously. So seeing the marine iguanas is just, is going to be definitely a highlight, I already know. Um, So, yeah, that's very high on the list. And, you know, Amazon in general, Pantanal. um, And species-wise, I really want to see a jaguar in the wild. And I would love to document the the hunting caiman behaviour where the jaguars hunt, um, like those those crocodiles there. Yeah. Very. That that would be awesome. That would be so cool. Do you, are, are you able to, cause are you, do you work freelance? Is it freelance that you do? do, So are you able to talk with like Nat Geo or any of the companies that you work with and say like, Hey, maybe we should do this shoot. Like, do you have a voice in in those or do they just come to you with a project? So it's a mix of both. Uh, So for example, the, the Black Panther, project was uh, a documentary that my husband and I pitched to National Geographic and so that um, you know is on one hand and then sometimes it will be uh, the other way where this is the the species or the behavior um, you know are you available or or willing to shoot this so it's it's a mix of both um, and we we pitch pretty often and um, so yeah, there's uh, and I did have Galapagos um, actually booked uh, pre-pandemic, and then obviously that oh, uh, no. that changed. So that might happen again in in future. I, I mean, it will. I'll make sure it happens. Um, <laughs> that's you know whether it's work or or not. Um, and the the great thing is if it's if it's not for work and I can finance that, then I've got content then that I can sell after the fact. Um, oh. Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, so anything that I do personally, uh, footage or image-wise, I then have rights to, um, you know, so I have 
a lot of stock footage that I can sell or do sell, uh, and then images, whether I sell that as image use uh, commercially or as like prints, for example. So, yeah, there's, you know, one of the ways of surviving, especially before I was filming uh, documentaries as, as the main thing, um, is diversifying because it's literally the only way I can pay my bills is to make sure I have like a few options. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something that I have input into and, uh, more so once things pick up again, um, this has been a bit of a, a forced, uh, break, but in a great way, uh, like a much needed break, uh, I yeah. will say. So I have enjoyed it. And the fact that I am located in, in the bush and it's like a right. wild area obviously i think i would if i was stuck somewhere in a city or somewhere unfamiliar i would have lost my mind um <laughs> so i'm very fortunate of the timing because i just got back from the u.s i'd done a speaking tour for national geographic literally got back to south africa in march right as everything started to close and the week oh i got gosh. back um south africa closed its borders so i just got back in time that for is that so whew, that's yeah that's that would have been nuts being stuck overseas you know i'm used to being overseas and away for long periods but it's different if um you know obviously you're not prepared for it or it's not part of the budget to be stuck yeah. in a foreign country so yeah and obviously, that, it's the living uh, expenses are a little bit cheaper here in South Africa versus the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Mm. What was the speaking tour for? So, uh, so National Geographic does uh, a live show series that they they take around many many cities, uh, and so my. Uh, tour was actually about the making of the Black Panther documentary. Um, so it was a like a 70-minute presentation um, and it was a, a, a focus on making that documentary but also, you know, my life and how I got to that point of, of filming wildlife and kind of the adventures along the way uh, yeah. such as <laughs> breaking my back in the field right. and things like that. So, Yeah. It was uh, it's it's quite a fun show actually. It's like a bit of an emotional roller coaster. So it was a good, yeah, Dang, it was a good one. <laughs> that's so cool that you're able to to do that sort of thing as well with yeah. them and such a cool company. Yes, yeah, definitely. How I grew you... up dreaming of doing stuff for Nat Geo. Never thought I would. So yeah, that's that's like every photographer. That's like the the dream, the big leagues. Yeah. <laughs> um, how long have you been working with them in particular? So, like seven years, roughly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's nice is, you know, once I first started working with them, it, it builds into a relationship. So, you know, it's really nice to then have those connections. So, for example, if, if my husband and I are pitching ideas, then obviously Nat Geo we're going to go to um, – you know, as as one of the potential broadcasters that uh, to see who's interested in doing it. So, um, yeah, it's a honor to work with them for sure. Yeah, and I also have to say that's so cool. You and your husband are both filmmakers and photographers. It's Russ, right? That's it Ross. is. Yes. Yeah, Russ. he's he is phenomenal. I've looked. I've Amazing. followed him for a while too. And yes. I mean, you both are so talented. It's, it's he's, he's so incredibly talented and such a hard worker. And so he doesn't post on social media that often, uh, but my goodness, he's out there. He's, he has so much content, but it's very much that situation where we can't release it. So right. yeah. yeah, the, the things that he's documented and seen it's magic. He has a lot of stuff coming out. Um, and he definitely hasn't uh, taken advantage of the time off as much as I have. I kind of <laughs> needed this break. Um, and he has just been hustling the whole way through it and busy, busy. So, yeah. That's so cool. Does yeah. he share your love for reptiles as well or does he have a yes. favorite species? <laughs> um, 
yeah, he, he's a reptile lover. That was definitely a, a topic that uh, sort of sparked our initial conversations. <laughs> um, <laughs> and actually the first time we met in person was on Komodo, oh, Indonesia and Komodo Island, seeing the dragons oh, there. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Uh, so we got married over there um, in Bali while we were there. Um and yeah, he huge reptile lover, and he—I mean—he's grown up here in the South African bush, so he's used to cobras and black mambas and puff adders and all the things as well. So he's—he's, <laughs> he's, you know, quite a confident handler. Uh, so yeah, definitely a shared passion. Although I will say, if he had to pick a favorite species, I'm pretty sure he'd pick a big cat, probably leopard, mm. maybe. I just yeah. watched the the big cat episode on Netflix of uh, the new show they just put out. I, I think it's called I forget what it's Animal? called, but it was yes. and, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. was amazing. Yeah, so we we actually didn't do the cheat uh, the leopard on that series, but uh, we've got cheetah footage in there. So we've you've seen uh-huh. the 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 episode with the tiny tiny cubs, like they literally don't have their eyes open yet. Um, so that's ours and. I think there's some wild dog stuff in there. There's some secretary bird stuff. So there's a bit of a mix. That is so but, cool. Uh, yeah. What's it like to be like sitting at home and to see on Netflix the biggest streaming service in the world and be like, oh, <laughs> I, I shot that. Is that just surreal? It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say we um, – I'm trying to think what it was. We had some people over uh, at our house for a barbecue and – some of the people we had over um, film for us. So, you know, we'll send out on to, to shoots and stuff. And so it was a series and I actually i am forgetting what it was. It m- might have actually been Animal. But anyway, of so Russ's brother also films and then we had a, a friend over as well. And so Russ plus these two other guys all had uh, footage in – um, in this documentary so they're all like ah I did that oh it made that <laughs> yay that made the cut like 90% of the footage will end up never being seen you know it's like right. I want to say cutting room floor because that's like the old style of like it never sees the light of day so there's some pretty cool stuff out there so it's so rewarding to see because often we don't know what they're going to use until the final edit comes out and the 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 film comes out and then we're like oh okay. oh that's kind of crazy too so <laughs> yeah. you kind of experience it for the first time like we yeah the viewers do too oh absolutely and especially once you start adding things like um, music and the audio and voiceover like all of those things play such a huge role on top of um, you know just the footage and how the footage is edited and those things very much influence uh, the emotion that goes with and kind of guide the emotions right. you're supposed to feel in this particular scene so you're relying on the music and the audio to kind of know if we're going into like an ah moment or a, oh my god <laughs> moment you know yeah <laughs> so it's very very influential um, how they do all of that and how it all comes together. So, yeah, it's super exciting seeing it um, and just hoping that, you know, it's, uh, that our footage is, you know, going to make the end cut or right. that it's, you know, going to live up to what we kind of saw and experienced ourselves because, you know, we obviously are very attached to certain things that we've filmed or experienced that may never make the final documentary. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, do, it's, oh, I was going to ask, do you bring your own gear for these shoots or do they provide you with gear as well? So it can vary depending on whether you had your own gear or not. So Russ and I over the years have invested a lot in in our gear. So we have a lot so much that we actually rent back to production. So oh, sometimes wow. on productions that we're not on. So we'll have gear that we're on our shoot, but we can also rent extra gear to other productions. Um, so that's also part of the diversifying. So you know, on top of the filming and the photographing, um, then we have the gear rental as well. So that's, um, you know, something that we've built up over the years. So we film uh, on red. So we have a few different red 
Yeah. <laughs> they're <laughs> so badass. <laughs> I know. They're <laughs> awesome. And, you know, the people at Red are amazing. So they I, – I don't even know how many years we've been shooting on Red and dealing with them, but it's like it's – like, it's like National Geographic. It's like family now. Like where yeah. they're the best <clears throat> people. So amazing. So innovative. So supportive. Very very cool. So yeah, it, yeah, they're they're amazing cameras. I I got I was fortunate to shoot on a Komodo for the shark trip, and um, I had never really used it before. But I mean, I had it in the naughty camp housing. I wasn't under yes. diving with it, and the end result. It was unreal. I mean, yeah. we pulled frames from it, and they were like as yeah. good as my stills for my my nice still camera. I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, and that's part of the beauty of, you know, going into filming and having something that produces such high-resolution content because prior to that it was like, should I film this sequence or should I be photographing stills? Like, you know, if you have yeah. the choice, you're kind of torn. Whereas now you can focus on really capturing that behavior and um, in slow motion as well now, which right. is amazing, especially with the Raptor that's just come out. Um, oh, it's super cool. I got to play with it um, a couple of months ago uh, and yikes. Yeah, I'm waiting for mine to arrive. Oh, wow. <laughs> so amazing. That like yeah. that resolution and frame rate, incredible. Um, but then, you know, having that flexibility of pulling frames, which is really important for, um, you know, say you need graphics for the movie poster or for social media marketing or the website that goes with the documentary. But yeah. we can't risk missing filming a sequence um then we still are able to pull those frames for for all those extra things that are needed as part oh. of general marketing yeah so super, it is common to do that then yeah absolutely yeah this oh, that is so cool. it's kind of um you know it's become an expectation now as as part of bigger productions that um you know, you're working with such incredibly high resolution cameras. Um, and like the bulk of what we'll shoot is going to be 8K now. Um, wow. Yeah. Unless we're, you know, trying to go down for a higher frame rate, but yeah. definitely 4K absolute minimum, preferably yeah. 6K minimum these days. So, yeah. Because yeah, also, from exactly, the editor's perspective is. You know, if we have a scene and I'm stuck in a vehicle and uh, if I move then I lose sight of the shot or by moving I disturb the animal. So for whatever reason, if I'm literally stuck in that scene, you know, if I'm filming uh, 8K and I did this with um, with the raptor, I literally had this tiny little window to film these lion cubs on a giraffe kill I couldn't get into a different position. I was quite far away. So I'm filming and knowing that I can crop into that footage, but not only can I crop in to that footage for an end result, still have 4K, um, you know, final edit, but I can do like a moving pan across that footage. So what I would normally say do with um, like a Ronin or if I like just gently rolled the vehicle and had some movement, um, you know, in those situations where you can't do that, you're dealing with such high resolution footage that you can do that in post and or crop and cut a scene that you've been stuck in one position, but it feels like you've had different focal lengths, um, you know, where you've cropped in differently cutting that scene just to keep it dynamic. So, yeah. so much flexibility. Oh, that's so cool. With I never even thought about that way with so much resolution you can – stay yeah. in one position and completely change the impact of like clips. Yeah, absolutely. It's wow. definitely one of the tricks we need because, you know, you there are certain situations where uh, either I can't move or I'm going to ruin what's happening in front of me by disturbing the subject. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Is the helps. majority of the shots like sitting in one spot just for a long period of time? Like do you rarely get to move around a lot? Um 
you'd probably be surprised how much we can move. It oh, okay. really comes down to um, not only the species but the individual animal at the time and the situation. Um, so, you know, if it's a, a lion, for example, and it's very, very relaxed, then we will definitely take the opportunity to reposition the vehicle, shoot from a completely different angle, um, you know, depending on where the sun is. If we're spending all day with them and we're waiting and they're sleeping most of the time, then we might um, have started in one place, but by the time they get up and do something, the lights completely change. So once we know they are going to actually start moving around, then we can shift with that. So yeah, there there are certainly situations where we can move around a lot or do motion shots. We do uh, quite a bit of crane work off a vehicle. So, you know, you'll have the screen and you'll be working remote. um, And that way you can get some like towering shots and then go down nice and low or uh cineflexes is quite popular in in um, wildlife filmmaking as well so you're on um a five axis gimbal and it's fully contained and so it's all remote controlled and your vehicle could be like pummeling along on a bumpy road but you're getting these low super smooth like through the grass eye level shots of like something running beside you which is just Those the are magic, the, best. the magic yeah. shots, yeah. So beautiful oh stuff. So yeah, it really varies. It depends on uh, mostly on the subject and how tolerant they are. Yeah, and right. then within species that changes as well. So you kind of have to just play it on the day and, and kind of learn about tolerate. that animal in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing I, uh, I'm sure you, you're very busy. I, I just want to touch on real quick. You have a, a jewelry company. Yeah. I, I would love to hear about that because I think it's super cool. Thank you. Yeah. So I, you know, obviously working with wildlife that, that came from a place of loving nature and animals. Um, and through this work, I've got to meet so many incredible uh, wildlife organizations and people on the ground here, like doing really hard work to save habitats and, and animals. And so there was a period in my life where I got really sick a few years ago and I was very frustrated that I wasn't able to be out filming and photographing and working with these people and and feeling like I was contributing. So uh, I started this jewelry brand because it was like something I could physically do from bed because I wasn't well enough to be up and about. So that then gave me the opportunity to then collaborate with those people that I've had the opportunity to work with and see what they do and how they give back. Um, so it's organizations that I trust. So generally they're, they're smaller wildlife organizations. Um, so I've collaborated with uh, 12 at the moment and we have our 13th collaboration coming out hopefully early next year if all goes on the timeline. <laughs> and that'll be our first uh, reptile-related um, conservation org. Uh, but, yeah, so there's a lot of um, different ones depending on, you know, if you want to buy a bracelet based on how it looks or based on the charity that it supports, then there's a lot of variety there because we support uh, habitat protection. Um, There's anti-poaching units for rhino and general wildlife protection. Um, There's uh, horse and equine rescue in India, which is actually where I was based when I filmed the Black Panther documentary. Um, The equine sanctuary was actually founded while I was there. Um, Mm. So I got to see that build up and they do incredible work. Um, We also have marine conservation um, in Fiji. So with a specific focus on corals and turtles and marine habitats. So, yeah, there is like literally something for everyone. Um, there's uh, a very cool um, organization called the Adventures of Pili, which is South uh, America based. And so that gives a, a conservation related coloring in book to um, underprivileged children, but it also uh, plants a tree 
uh, in Colombia where uh, and indigenous trees in areas that need reforestation. So that's kind of like a double whammy. So you get wow. this double double bracelet, which is a beautiful uh, green and yellow. Um, and then knowing that um, that is going to be the result of your purchase. And, you know, what I'm really proud of is the whole, the whole point of, of founding Wild in Africa was to give back. So we donate 50% of the purchase price. So it's literally whatever you're paying, half of that is going to that charity. It's not, um, you know, like what's left over if there's profit or this portion right. of this it's uh, you know i didn't want to be ambiguous at all so it's very clear like how much is going to the charity and the beautiful thing about that is you know the the areas that we're working in um that money goes a lot further here on the ground you know whether that's in india or in africa um yeah. then you know so it's a small purchase for say someone you know, based in the US or in, in Europe or Australia, but it actually makes a really uh, tangible difference. That's so awesome. I think that is the coolest thing that I mean, uh, you're, you're, it's so great because you're doing so much work for conservation with your photography, but then you also found such a great way to do it from a business standpoint, like in developing this product that's so great and doing it there as well. Thank you. Yeah. yeah and it's like cool. a, a nice way for people to easily be involved and contribute mm-hmm. because, you know, not everyone can afford to go on safari and have their tourism dollars help support, you know, a certain right. region. And then certainly at the moment where um, we're prevented from doing that. So it's just, you know, it's a it's an affordable way to like actually be involved and contribute. Totally. Yeah, that's, that is awesome. Um, well, thank you so, so much again for coming on. This was a treat for me. It was so great to talk to you and pick your brain about some stuff. I know I learned a lot. Um, and (laughs) I'm going to tell a lot more people about your jewelry as well. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That'd be awesome. You're welcome. Um, oh, I really well, appreciate it and uh, appreciate your uh, patience and flexibility with the power issues that we're having <laughs> here. <laughs> no, af- especially after hearing about how often it is. I mean, oh uh, yeah, I no worries. Well, Shannon, thank you again so much. And uh, this has been so great. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.